0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer.
1: It's the mid-14th century, and Europe is beginning to find its feet again. After a series of terrible famines, and in places like England a crushing livestock blight, life is returning to normalcy. The populace, however, is weakened. Years of malnourishment have left bodies emaciated, and substantial loss of life has shrunk towns and villages. Little did anyone know that further east, a new and horrifying reality would soon exploit these frailties further. It's 1345, and a pestilence is raging in the lands of the Golden Horde in what is now Southern Russia. For years, the Khan Yanni Beg was attempting to besiege the Crimean city of Kaffa. His efforts were stymied as his men began to drop dead from the mysterious illness. The traders in the city, who hailed from across the Mediterranean, were delighted that they might soon be freed. One way or another, however, the illness found its way over the walls. Gabriel de Mussis of Piacenza claimed that the Khan had kick-started this by catapulting the corpses of two of his infected men into the city. As dramatic as that story is, it's also quite possibly false. Regardless, as the newly freed caffins fled the city on boats, they carried the pestilence with them. It's 1347, and the plague has arrived in Egypt. In Alexandria, at least 300 people died per day, with the numbers sometimes reaching 7,000 per day. There was a shortage of coffins, of shrouds, of preachers, and of gravediggers. Writing in Algeria, the historian Ibn Khaldun said of the pestilence
2: that it, devastated nations and caused nations to vanish. The situation approached the point of annihilation and dissolution. It was as if the voice of existence in the world had called out for oblivion and restriction, and the world had responded to its call.
1: Across the Mediterranean, in what is now Italy, Twelve Genoese galleys arrive in Messina, and
2: it is said by witnesses that the sailors carried such a disease in their bodies that if anyone so much as spoke with one of them, he was infected with a deadly illness and could not avoid death.
1: It's 1348 and the plague has arrived in Siena. There, the chronicler Agnolo di Toro wrote,
2: The mortality was a cruel and horrible thing. It seemed that almost everyone became stupefied seeing the pain. It is impossible for the human tongue to recount the awful truth. Father, abandoned, child. Wife, husband. One brother, another. For this illness seemed to strike through breath and sight, and so they died. None could be found to bury the dead for money or friendship. Members of a household brought their dead to a ditch as best they could, without priest, without divine offices. In many places in Siena, great pits were dug and piled deep with the multitude of dead. And they died by the hundreds, both day and night, and all were thrown in those ditches and covered with earth. As soon as those ditches were filled, more were dug. I buried my five children with my own hands. And so many died that all believed it was the end of the world.
1: By the time that what we now refer to as the Black Death had subsided somewhere between 75 and 200 million people in Afro-Eurasia would be dead. A loss of life so massive that entire towns and cities collapsed, and the Earth's temperature would cool. Nothing would ever be the same. But as devastating and important as the Black Death was, until recently, we were as confused as our medieval forerunners about where exactly this horrible disease had originated from. I'm Dr. Eleanor Janaga, and today on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I'm speaking with Professor Philip Slavin from the University of Stirling. His work uses cutting-edge techniques of paleoepidemiology and DNA research to consider exactly where and how the worst pandemic the world has ever seen began, and what that reveals to us about the medieval world. Philip, I want to say, first of all, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I am really excited to have you along because I love talking about the Black Death, but one of the other things that you are an expert in is the other huge calamity of the 14th century that I think people really forget about on the way to the Black Death, which is the Great Famine. Can we start out by talking about what the Great Famine was and how things were already pretty bad in Europe earlier in the 14th century, no?
3: Absolutely. So the 14th century famine was one of the harshest subsistence crises in recorded history. It was caused by a torrential rain of biblical proportions that started in the autumn of 1314 and just went on and on for 26 straight months, which is unbelievable. And the result was quite sad. You have three back-to-back harvest failures, People were starving, but something very important that lots of people don't appreciate is that it's not that Mother Nature creates famine, it's really a man-made phenomenon, because when you have shortages of food, we as humans, we start just acting in much more selfish way than what we really are. People that have advantage and have more access to food start storing food and hoarding food and drives the prices up. So as a result, the prices were incredibly high. Very few people could afford buying anything. And then not before too long, people started developing all sorts of very nasty diseases. One important thing is that people don't die from hunger or starvation. They more tend to die from famine-induced diseases. So between 1315 and 1370, Northern Europe, and I was focusing on England and other parts of the British Isles, lost something in the area of 20% of the population which is unbelievably high because an average famine, or what is defined as famine, you lose something between 5 to 10% of population. So if you think about the Irish potato famine, for example, which was one of the harshest famines, so the figures were quite comparable to what we have in the 14th century. So 20% of population died in this awful famine of 1315 to 1317.
1: I think it's really important to remember that the Great Famine happened because here's this horrible event. Losing 20% of the population would be almost unheard of in the first place. And then you have a terrible pandemic come through. But the point is that this is really lurking in the background for a lot of Europeans. They've just kind of got back on their feet again. And then along comes something even worse, which is the Black Death.
3: Absolutely. To make things even worse, there was another awful biological disaster in the meantime. So the Great Famine ended in 1317, and two years later, you have an outbreak of cattle pestilence, and that was another awful disaster. It killed about 60 to 65% of British cattle, and that's something that had long-term repercussions for a local population, especially for peasantry. So the replenishment of cattle after this disaster was painful, very expensive, and very slow. So as a result, you're dealing with an entire generation of people that were deprived of some very important vitamins associated with dairy food. As a result, you're dealing with an entire generation of very weakened individuals in physical terms.
1: Yeah, it's almost like they don't really stand a chance. Let's be very technical about this. What is the Black Death?
3: The Black Death was the the first wave in this long series of flake waves that visited Europe and other parts of Western Eurasia, the Middle East and North Africa from the 14th up until the 19th century. So the Black Death was the first of those waves. Up until recently, we had no idea where it started. There were lots of controversies and debates among historians, archeologists, and the scientists. And there were different theories. Some theories thought that it started somewhere in Central Asia. Some other people thought it started somewhere in China. Mongolia was another candidate. Crimea, Caspian, and India, and so on and so forth. One scientist even thought that they didn't start on Earth at all. So it's been one of those greatest mysteries as far as its origins is concerned. It also was arguably the harshest and the most notorious killer of humans in recorded history. So we can assume now that it killed somewhere between 50 and possibly 60% of population of Western Eurasia, the Middle East and North Africa. It was one of those points where at least, you know, part of humanity were actually on the verge of extinction. And that sounds quite gloomy, but that's what it was.
1: So there's this really exciting research that's kind of going on in terms of looking at the actual genomic evidence that we have for the Black Death. And this is kind of pointing us now to thinking that it's come to us out of what is now Kyrgyzstan. Is that right?
3: Yes. We live in very exciting times when lots of those mysterious questions can actually be answered now thanks to amazing techniques of ancient DNA studies. So you're working with microbiologists and those people actually have those amazing techniques. You really need a tooth from a human specimen you drill there you extract ancient dna and the next thing you do you actually you verify if there's any presence of ancient bacteria or viruses or not and i was lucky to have joined hands with amazing colleagues from the max planck institute in germany and uh, together we managed to get access to skulls from uh, northern kyrgyzstan from the same site where uh, the black Death started and to our astonishment there were several things that we found We first of all found that there was indeed presence of the Yersinia pestis bacteria in those skulls. But even more remarkably, we found that phylogenetically, in other words, from the point of evolutionary development, that particular strain that was responsible for that outbreak, it was falling right on what biologists refer to as the Big Bang of the 14th century. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so the Big Bang was an evolutionary event, and previously we weren't quite sure when exactly it happened but previously it has been estimated that at some point between the 11th and the the 14th century there was a major revolutionary event in the history of the plague bacterium, whereby you have the emergence of no less than four new lineages. And that's a major event, Eleanor. You don't really get to see anything like that in other known evolutionary history of the same bacteria. In other words, something quite major was happening at the same time. And I mentioned that it has been estimated that this major event took place between the 11th and the 14th century, but we weren't quite sure when. And actually, our research solved this mystery as well, because that graveyard where we derived our skeletons, our skulls, is actually blessed with the precisely dated tombstones. So we know that those individuals died in 1338 and 1339, because that's what is written on the actual tombstones. So in other words, now we firmly know that the Black Death actually did start somewhere in the region, possibly northern Kyrgyzstan, possibly further south, maybe a little bit further east, we're not sure where, but it certainly started somewhere in the Shan region. We also know that actually it did start around 1338, 1339.
1: I think one of the other things that's really interesting about linking the Black Death starting off to this region is it really shows you how well connected the medieval world is in a lot of ways. I think now people tend to see Central Asia as a kind of very far away place that we don't have a lot of connections to, which is, of course, not true in and of itself. But this is a place that medieval people are moving through all the time, and it has connections with Europe.
2: Oh,
3: absolutely. I think one thing that lots of our own contemporaries tend to forget is how amazingly urbanized that uh, part of the world used to be up until the second half of the 14th century. We have to distinguish, actually, between Central Asia before the Black Death and after the Black Death. Before the Black Death, it was one of the most urbanized parts of the world. You have literally hundreds of towns of different size. And we're talking about hundreds of those towns anywhere between the Caspian and uh, China, and there were several routes that were connecting parts of Western Eurasia and Eastern Eurasia. And those routes are now commonly known as the Silk Road. And there were caravans passing with merchants. And there were lots of merchants going all the way from the Caspian, from Caucasus, from Crimea, all the way to China and then back. And there's more than enough evidence about that. For example, one of the interesting things that we find archaeologically in the same graveyard in Northern Kyrgyzstan that I was talking about is different coins that were minted in different parts of Central Asia. But uh, what's really remarkable is that some of those coins were minted in very far away places. Termez, which is on the Uzbekistan-Afghanistan border, in Sultania, which was the capital of the Ilkhanate. It was one of the Mongol khanates that overlaps roughly with the Iran and part of Iraq. Some of those coins came from Samarkand. In other words, you have more than enough evidence about very extensive and long distance trades that was happening around the time of the Black Death. But at the same time, it's also important to realize that around the time of the Black Death, around the time of uh, the same epidemic that happened in northern Kyrgyzstan, you actually you have the first signs of crisis in international trade which was caused by war and slowly but surely different segments of the Silk Road were simply shut and long-distance trade got paralyzed. So one of the reasons actually why it took such a long time for the Black Death strain to reach Europe or to be more precise to reach Crimea because it was from Crimea that in 1347 it was imported to other parts of Europe. So one of the reasons why it took such a long time, seven years, is because long-distance trade was paralyzed and it was really a movement of strain was correspondingly low because of that.
1: There's nothing you could really do, I think, about this in terms of, in a world before, antibiotics. It's such an incredibly virulent kind of disease that, you know, if you came into contact with anyone in the area at all, it was just going to get to you. But I think this is all a really important and interesting bit as well, because I think a lot of the time when we talk about the Black Death, people act like this is something that just happened to Europe. And I've certainly seen, for example, myths about it, where people will say, oh, only Europe was really affected by the Black Death because medieval Europeans didn't bathe, which is untruth on top of untruth. You have all these really terrible things that are happening in Central Asia. You have a complete destabilization of a region, an incredibly wealthy and important place at the time, and it fundamentally changes it. And I think that that is important to realize with all of this, that this isn't a story about Europeans, this is a story about Afro-Eurasia as
3: a whole. Plague history, even now, it massively suffers from very Western Eurocentric perspective, where we tend to forget what happened in the other parts of the world, despite the fact that we have amazing documentation For example, in the Middle East, the proportions of this disaster in terms of human toll were no less serious than it was in Europe. We have very good quantitative data from Syria and from Egypt, where you can see that actually people were dying, roughly speaking, in the same proportions as they were dying in Europe. So we're talking about anywhere between 50 and 60 percent of population. And the long-term effects on some part of the Middle East were actually harsher than it were in Europe. I mean, think about Egypt, for example. I'm talking about pre-industrial period, right? So to successfully sustain its agricultural output, Egypt has to have enough working hands because it all depends on the irrigation technology, right? So you have those canals along the Nile River and it's very labor-intensive sector, which is dependent on the permanent supply of working hands. When you end up with a situation when you lose about 50% of your population, you simply don't have enough hands to handle and work those irrigation canals. And then you had recurrent outbreaks of plague in the course of the 14th and 15th century. So as a result, actually, Egypt, from one of the wealthiest regions in the world, slowly but surely was becoming one of the poorest ones. Just one example.
1: I think that is just so incredibly terrifying on a number of levels. One of the things I'm quite interested in, in terms of the Black Death stuff is health outcomes and social outcomes as a result of the Black Death. And am I correct in thinking that a lot of the time, some of the places that we see as being hit hardest, I mean... Egypt having very particular agricultural needs notwithstanding. But they're often places that are quite well urbanized, right? Because you're kind of cheek by jowl with other people, so it sort of jumps around. Hence, you know, a huge die-offs in Egypt, which is incredibly urbanized, or in the Middle East, or in Central Asia, where we see these really big cities.
3: That's a very good point. One of the things that happens within, say, 50 or 70 years from the outbreak of the Black Death in Central Asia is that most of those uh, urban centers were uh, simply abandoned. One thing we have to understand is that we don't have lots of textual evidence from Central Asia. That's why we have to rely on archaeology, and there's very good archaeological record showing that the majority of those urban centers just got abandoned, and uh, there was a huge decline in the overall number of those places. As far as other parts in Europe are concerned, here we really have to distinguish between different places because you have some instances in England, for example, when certain cities like Norwich declined, but other places like York, for example, or Bristol were booming despite the crisis. In other words, it all depends on the ability of local community to be resilient. And here the factors are very complicated. You can have one urban community with very low ability of uh, resilience. And that's why this community just depopulated and uh, was subjugated to a long-term crisis. But another community was just prospering because of its ability to encourage people to immigrate there and just to uh, restore its previous glory.
1: Yeah, you know, in terms of the city that I work on the most, Prague, it's actually quite a funny story because Prague just kind of is all right for some reason. You know, this isn't to say that nobody died of the plague there and there, there's a kind of lively discussion about that, shall we say. Some people saying that the plague was there, other people saying that there wasn't. But you know, it doubles in size over the 14th century. You know, in the period when everyone else is dying in Europe, there's a lot of people who say, oh, well, hey ho, lost my entire family, guess I'm going to Prague. And so it actually experiences the opposite. But I think that's actually one of the really intriguing things about the Black Death is that, yeah, and sometimes it means the collapse of certain places. I mean, certainly here in England, you know, we lose whole villages because people just pick up and leave after everybody's dead. Or, you know, you see places like, I don't know, uh, Florence, I suppose, loses about 50% of its population, but then bounces back. You don't really know how particular places are going to react one way or another, which I think is really quite fascinating.
3: It's quite fascinating, and if we're going back to the story of plague, there certainly were recurrent outbreaks in, in Bohemia. Most likely, it was hit the Black Death, despite you know the fact that some historians think otherwise. There also was an outbreak in 1359-60, then there was another one in 1369-71, and of course then you have uh, this major outbreak in 1380. So you have at least four recurrent waves within the space of, what, 30 years. But despite the fact, despite that, despite all this carnage and the loss in human life, you still have this remarkable growth in the population of Prague. I think Florence is a very good example as well. It was ultimately down to individual lack or fortune of individuals, which of course was very closely tied with the efficiency of local governance because some cities were blessed with very efficient and very competent governance and some other cities were not really that lucky.
1: I think that's absolutely the case. And I'm also quite interested in the way that individuals sort of fare because there's been some quite interesting research along the lines of yours about what happens with various groups of people in the Black Death. So, for example, you know, in the same way that we all sort of experienced in our recent pandemic during the COVID-19 crisis, We saw really different health outcomes for people based on, for example, a socioeconomic bracket. You know, it's one thing if you could stay home all the time and kind of avoid it. But if you're a healthcare worker or if you were someone who worked in a kitchen, you know, I know in America, actually, the number one dangerous job to have during COVID-19 was to be a short order cook. It had the highest death rate of anyone in America. And we do see somewhat similar things we think now in terms of health, how it comes into the black death, right? So I mean, Poorer people, you know, you're also probably still reeling from things like having grown up during the cattle pestilence in England, but also, you know, having the kind of work that means that you come into contact with others and you can't really hide, right?
3: It's a very interesting question, Eleanor, and I think the answer is incredibly complicated here. Let me just give an example. So, in England, for which we have the best statistical sources, right? So, we can roughly speaking estimate that the Women and men were dying in equal proportions, even though we can say with a certain degree of uh, confidence that uh, guys used to spend more time outdoors most of the time, whereas women tended to stay more indoors. But despite that, actually, you have both genders to the same extent to catch and get infected. But what's really interesting is that uh, when you get to the second wave, known as the Peste Secunda, which hit England in 1361 and 1362. Then something really remarkable happens. You have clear evidence that guys were actually much more prone, much more susceptible to the second wave. And uh, much less women would die. We have no idea why. It's one of the most fascinating things. I would like to speculate here maybe, possibly it was just molecular differences between the strain that was responsible for the Black Death and the strain that was responsible for the second wave. They were similar, but they also were different. And we still don't really know what was special on molecular level, on very in-depth molecular level, with the strain that caused the second wave after the Black Death. But there you go. Much more guys died than women. So I think it really differed from strain to strain, from outbreak to outbreak, because every outbreak was associated with different strain, just like COVID. Now, I think that that is such a
1: intriguing thing to
3: think about. There used to be real big
1: debates about strains that kind of in the 90s around the Black Death. The theories, for example, of the things that people were dying about in the Black Death wasn't the Black Death at all, it was anthrax. I remember that one pretty vividly. And, you know, certain people trying to differentiate, for example, between that what they would call the bubonic and the pneumonic plagues, And I think one of the things that's so fascinating about your work and the genomic work that we're being able to do now is kind of having a direct look at the bones and say, okay, well, yeah, it's a different strain. It's slightly different from the Yersinia pestis that we see initially, but that's still your guy, right?
3: I don't blame historians for doubting the fact that it wasn't actually caused by plague, because you you can't really be certain about anything unless you have evidence, and it wasn't until 2010... We have the first microbiological publication where it was able to establish clearly that the Black Death was actually caused by a different strain of plague than the strains that were known at that point. Now, of course, we know that plague has very long evolutionary history. It's not even a medieval disease. The history of plague goes all the way back at least six and most likely more, maybe 7,000 years ago. We know that the late Neolithic hunters, gatherers all over Eurasia were infected with Yersinia pestis. It is quite possible that the entire civilizations of uh, late Neolithic period collapsed because of uh, circulation of bacteria lots of unknowns. And uh, that's why we live in such a exciting times, at least scientifically.
1: When you have something as horrifying as this happen, I think it's really difficult for people now to kind of accept that terrible things just happen you know sometimes you can have a germ that mutates and terrible things happen and it doesn't have to do with people being superstitious it doesn't have to do with people being you know gross there isn't a kind of moral way out of this to justify when terrible things happen sometimes you just have pandemics and especially you have pandemics in well-connected worlds where people are kind of living by each other when you haven't got away, you know, of, of stopping it. You know, until antibiotics came along, no one could have really done anything about
3: this. That's a very good way to put that. Obviously, you have tendency to blame everything on humans. It's very hard, actually, to understand that there's certain molecular processes that are sometimes very complicated. Sometimes they're very badly understood. There are lots of unknowns and lots of variables that we still don't understand how they work and lots sort of aspects of how Erosinipas's uh, bacteria mutates, for example. And sometimes one mutation is enough just for some crazily bad disastrous outbreak to unfold and kill 50 or 60 percent of population just like it happened with the black death and obviously has nothing to do with humans, humans had no agency there. They had agency maybe in terms of as traders or as soldiers as people who were helping facilitating this disease but it would have been there without humans anyways it was just a matter of time that it would spread anyways.
1: Now, I find that a really interesting point as well, because I think that there is also, you know, some tendency to kind of mock the medieval people who were trying to make sense of the Black Death, you know, when people didn't have an answer for this. And, you know, nobody had an answer because nobody knew what a germ was yet, which is fair enough. If you don't have germ theory, there's no way to understand this. and. We do have this tendency to kind of make fun of people for saying, oh, well, I suppose God is punishing us. Where we say, oh, it's so obvious that this is just kind of a thing that happens. But we retain this real desire to kind of blame people in the past for not having known or not being able to guess how it is that this terrible disease is spreading.
3: One of the most important advices I can ever give to anyone is don't judge historical communities, historical cultures through the prism of our contemporary perspective. That's a very dangerous idea because you always have to understand what was the context, what were the resources, what was the knowledge, what was the technology around that time. When we're going back to the 14th century, the only knowledge of medicine they had was the same Hippocratic Hellenic knowledge that was around for 2,000 years, right? And it was very slowly changing and things were not changing at all. It was based on the theory of four humors and the disposition of bodies with different humors to different diseases. And then it was related to a planetary constellation and other things. We know that they're not really related to how pathogens work. But we have to wait actually all the way until the later 19th century when, you know, great people like Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch and, of course, most importantly for us, Alexandre Riassin, the same guy who was the first one to isolate and sequence the uh, plague bacteria in 1894. That's why it's called uh, Yersinia pestis, uh, thanks to him. But it doesn't mean that uh, it's the right thing actually to judge those uh, totally helpless and totally clueless 14th century individuals by our own standards.
1: I'm also really quite interested in how the plague is very recurrent now, right? And this is one of the wonderful things about the post-germ world, right? And, you know, we know what germs are. And this is more specifically a bacterium. It's not a virus. And that means that we're actually really great at treating the black death now, right? Like it's a terrible thing if it goes untreated, but we can kind of get in front of it if people do come down with it. Yes?
3: It depends where and where, of course. Plague hasn't been eradicated and it will be very difficult to eradicate that because, uh, first of all, plague is not a human disease. It's first and foremost, it's a wild rodent disease. It thrives in reservoirs of uh, wild rodents like marmots, uh, gerbils, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, you still have plague uh, reservoirs. In the United States of America, you have prairie dogs all around in Colorado and parts of California and in Montana, all the way actually to southern Saskatchewan. And I'm just very lucky. Those current strains are not as deadly as the strain of the Black Death. But uh, in theory, and you don't want to sound gloomy and doomy, but in theory, sometimes one mutation is enough just to uh, create some very highly virulent strain that you can have some uh, very uh, serious repercussions. Of course, we have uh, antibiotics and other ways to treat the plague, but uh, the question is, do we have enough hospital capacity? That's another question we have to ask. And uh, we also have to keep in mind that uh, bubonic plague is only one of three major types of plague. We also have pneumonic plague, right? Which is uh, spread by droplets, and uh, that's hardly treatable disease and most people just die within 24 hours and uh, then you also have septicemic plague when it gets to your blood system and again that's uh, virtually 100 percent death it all depends where you are and what context and what strain we're dealing with
1: You know, I think that that is such an important thing to keep in mind, right? We never really know what's going to happen with germs. And so I think that it bears repeating because it can help you feel a bit more softly to people in the past. And also I think it behooves us all if we think about our ancestors in the past as dealing with this horrible thing and actually the fact that they managed to keep a society together at all whatsoever is incredible in the face of Famine and plague and God knows what else. Of course, a huge ongoing wars in a lot of parts of Afro-Eurasia as well.
3: Yes, indeed. And uh, I think lots of people just fail to realize how uh, the overall potential of uh, this disease and it uh, is is still around. We just don't hear about that because it tends to kill some individuals in the uh, very sparsely populated communities somewhere In the Himalayas, for example, right? Or Madagascar. And those are not huge numbers. But uh, again, I think that uh, we always have to uh, keep in mind and... uh approach that from the perspective of a very sophisticated, very developed uh, communities of the West and the 21st century, which are allegedly so different from these people in the 14th century. We always have to keep things in perspective and uh, be careful.
1: Well, I think your work, Phil, is really helping us all do that. And I can't thank you enough for it and for coming on today to chat with us about it. Thank you so much.
3: Oh, thank you so much, Eleanor, for having me over. Thank you. Thank
1: you so much, as always, for listening. And thank you to Philip for joining me. This has been Gone Medieval from History Hit. And if you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, follow the podcast, and tell your friends about it. If you fancy suggesting an episode, you can drop us an email at gonemedieval at historyhit.com. Otherwise, I'll be back again next Tuesday for another episode. And my co-host Matt Lewis will be back on Friday. Until next time.